started. Um, the subject for today is the European Union as we alternate from class to class. And the assignment today focuses on social science and natural science. So as a way of coming into the question of what is the meaning of knowledge and what is the meaning of not science and how that relates to not only the European Union but international relations generally, uh, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know what we know? Or don't we know? Uh, for example, take global warming, the hot topic, if I may say so. Ha, ha, ha. Um, another study was released and, and in, in one of the major scientific journals, and it's front page news all across the country. More evidence. It would appear that you know, the world is getting warmer. The last two decades have been the warmest on record, although some say that when it, it was hotter than it is now when they started keeping records two centuries ago, but I don't know. Um, but do we really know that humans are causing the chlorofluorocarbons that are supposedly trapping greenhouse gases that are making the world, on average, warmer? Although England's apparently getting cooler, but that's because the Gulf Stream has been diverted, so it doesn't flow towards England anymore. It's flowing away from England. Um, but is that flowing away the result of the Nino effect, which is related to greenhouse gases, or is that flowing away because it's flowing away? In other words, is it natural or human-made, the causes of the Earth getting, t Earth getting um, hotter or colder? So this example, of course, might lead you to say, well, this is just ridiculous. Of course, the greenhouse gas effect is, is, is an effect. We know the weather's terrible. We know it, it's getting hotter. We know that we've been polluting the atmosphere like crazy since the Industrial Revolution. And the last 10 to 20 years, it's just getting worse and worse, with China and India joining the ranks of rapidly growing countries, bar burning carbon fuels like coal and, and gasoline and, and petroleum. Just stands for the reason. Just, you know, what don't you get, right? Is it a slam dunk, as George Tenet once said, of the evidence of WMD in Iraq before we went in blazing and there didn't turn out to be any? It's a slam dunk. And Curveball, just was interviewed yesterday, I think, revealed his name and said, well, why did you lie about the first the nuclear weapons and later the mobile biological weapons labs in Iraq. Why did you make it up? And he said, because I was against Saddam. It's really, it's really interesting, you know, some of the most obvious questions in retrospect no one even thought of. Curveball had to be, as an Iraqi chemical engineer defector from Saddam, someone who was reliable. And Colin Powell in his speech before the UN a month before the invasion said, we have firsthand evidence from an Iraqi chemical engineer that they're making WMD. The only problem is he was opposed to Saddam. That's why he was a defector. And that's why he made it up, because he wanted some country to go in and take him out. He didn't really think Germany would do it, but the United States got the information from Germany. Germany decided he was unreliable because somebody named Mr. Latif in 2000 went up to uh, German intelligence and say, that's not true. Saddam doesn't have that stuff. So they confronted Curveball and said, that's right. If I were you, I'd believe Mr. Latif. And yet, two years later, unbelievably, the US pressures Germany to come up with some information on biological weapons. And they go back to Curveball. And Curveball makes it up again, because now they're really going to overthrow Saddam, who he hates. 
In fact, he said, I think Saddam is WMD. It's a weapon of mass destruction. So uh, it's just like Saddam, why did you admit you didn't have nuclear weapons? Then the US wouldn't have invaded you. And he says, because Iran would have invaded us. All right, so how do you know what you know? The argument is that in science, you never absolutely know anything. Right? And there is this notion, uh, Thomas Kuhn wrote this book called The Logic of Scientific Revolution. Scientific Revolutions. Where he says that science advances every number of generations radically from where, what we understood before, because we have a radical new set of assumptions in which we organize our understanding of the world. So the world was flat, right? Until Columbus sailed and tipped over the edge. And all of a sudden, the world wasn't flat anymore. So before, we thought the world was flat. And our understanding of the world changed when the scientific facts finally contradicted that. Before him, Copernicus was, I think, excommunicated from the Holy Roman, the Roman Catholic Church for claiming that the US, sorry, the US, uh, the, the uh, Earth was not the center of the universe. The US, maybe. In fact, maybe the US is, but, but And so they came to realize with more astronomy, I, I, was Copernicus also an astronomer? So he actually saw the sun and figured out that we were going around the sun which wasn't even necessarily the center of the universe, but just the center of our galaxy. I guess nobody's discovered what is the center of the universe. And if they did, they'd probably be questioned. Uh, but the point is that Copernicus created a new paradigm, which said, you know, even though you know, you're dancing on Saturday night may be the center of your universe, uh, it's not the center of the universe. And then Newton came up with the laws of motion. Um, Every action is a reaction. Thermodynamics gets involved. And that was thought to be the way to go until Einstein came along. And then Einstein came up with theories of relativity, which said, you know, it may be true that there's gravitational force, if that's what Newton also discovered. But at, if you approach the speed of light, everything becomes infinite. So maybe most of us never get to travel in the speed of light. But you know, three centuries, five millennia from now, Everybody may hop a plane and go in the speed of light. Still, it'll take you a couple of years to get to Pluto. Of course, Pluto's not a planet anymore. Somehow it got demoted. But some other things out there are considered to be planets. But anyway, it'll take you a good 10 years, even at the speed of light, to get out there. And everything will be mush as you look around, because everything changes when you're in that kind of set of assumptions. And somebody will probably come along and contradict Einstein at some point. As far as global warming goes, <coughs> We don't know necessarily whether you can say without a shadow of a doubt that it's not human made or, for that matter, that it's not natural. Why is that? Remember we talked about correlations? What is a correlation? Just because something relates doesn't make it a cause. You're one step ahead of me. Uh, earlier question is just what is a correlation? Okay. Two phenomena that, or more that you associate with each other, if there is a correlation, the two, two or more phenomena are associated positively or negatively in some proportional way. But 
That doesn't mean A causes B just because A increases and B increases at a predictable rate. Why is that? Why is correlation not necessarily causation? Both could be caused by a One reason and the other reason? In that sense, if both are caused by a third phenomenon, they could still be causally related. It would just be A causes B, B causes C. So A and C still are causally related, even though there's an interim factor. What's the real reason? There's, there's a very high correlation between ice cream consumption and the crime rate. Does the ice cream cause the crime rate to go up? It's a coincidence. The answer is correlations can be a coincidence. What causes both to go up? The warm weather. The warm weather. Or the longer days, the more, the lo more daylight, right? Because when it's hotter and it's still light out, people go to the ice cream shop at 9 o'clock. And when it's warmer and people are outside, there are more people to rob at 9 o'clock on the street. So the cause, cause, causal correlation is either the hours of the day or the temperature or both. The ice cream is a spurious correlation of the crime rate. It's a coincidence. It's true, it changes at the exact same rate for a, release, a reason indirectly related, but the ice cream doesn't send your calorie count up so much that you get so hyper that you just gotta commit a crime. <laughs> just like the rate of transistor radios doesn't drive everyone crazy and send you to the insane asylum even though the correlation between transistor radios and the number of people in mental health institutions is, is both highly and positively correlated. Unless you think that the loud music drives everyone crazy. Maybe killing people you know, produces a craving for ice cream. We don't kill that many, though. <laughs> a lot more ice cream than that's consumed than people. At least, hopefully, that will always be true. And if you're in war killing a lot of people, you don't get to eat a lot of ice cream, as far as I know. They're not in MREs yet. You're not an MRE? They're not in MREs yet, no. <laughs> MRE is either morally repugnant elite or mobile ready, meals ready to eat. Meals ready to eat. That's right, MRE. In Haiti, they're called morally repugnant elites. Maybe not just in Haiti, either. Um, okay, so, and the specific reason that uh, we can't know for sure that global warming is either all human-made or natural or some combination therein is that statistical analysis is based on correlations. So the process of scientific knowledge is trying to make the case that it's not a coincidence. How do you make the case? Well, this is where philosophy of science debates exist and where reasonable people can disagree. But to just give you a, a slight example, um, one way to try to prove it is to prove it with evidence that supports the theory, either that global warming is caused by human activity or global warming is just a natural phenomenon getting us back to where we were in the Ice Age 50,000 years ago when we also had global warming and all the glaciers melted. We didn't have big power plants. We didn't have big industrial factories then. And yet, we did get the Hudson River, probably the Mississippi River, and some of these other rivers that were created when the glaciers melted 
scraped out the earth out of its path and that created, I don't know, geographic formations in which water fell into and became rivers. So we know it, it occurred naturally or at least non-humanly before and that naturally may have been an asteroid which apparently, according to one theory, killed the dinosaurs, right? We don't know if that's the way, reason all the dinosaurs went extinct. Maybe they were just too big to be eating plants because apparently they were vegetarians, unlike dogs, which kind of have prime rib these days, if you believe the ads for dog food. Even though actually they get all this, the parts of the, the animal's body that we don't want to eat mixed together. And that's why you shouldn't feed your dog human food because then they'll say, I'm not eating this dog food. I want prime rib. Feed him haggis. Haggis, okay. Did you go to Bobby Burns night in January? No. Have you ever? No, I should. You can order your haggis online. Wow. They come from Livingston, New Jersey, where all the Scots moved to. Well, there are a lot of Scots down here. I'm surprised they don't have haggis and butchers. Do they have butchers down here anymore? Or do you just go to Publix and say, give me your haggis? Right. It's just sheep's innards, for those of you that don't know about it. Robbie Burns. Uh, when you sing Old Lang Syne, that's a Bobby Burns song. I've had it. Actually, it's not that bad. It's not that good either. Yeah. OK, so what you've got to do is either prove everything confirms the theory, or you do the opposite and listen carefully. You try to disconfirm, that is disprove, the opposite of the theory, that is sometimes called the null hypothesis. So that if you can prove that the null hypothesis is not true, then you're making a stronger case that the hypothesis is true, and then your theory is true. The more the you can do this, either disproving the null hypothesis or supporting or confirming the hypothesis from which your theory is based, the more likely it is that it's true. So whether your theory is global warming it causes from humans and, indeed, and human industry, production factories, driving cars, burning coal for electricity, burning petroleum to run a steel mill, whatever it is, uh, you either come up with data that shows these correlations and not data that shows no correlation or a negative correlation. You know, the more you burn, the less greenhouse gases and the lower the temperature. Or, and more powerfully, scientists argue, you try to come up with evidence that shows that it's not true, that it was natural. And this is why the cigarette companies would argue for 40 years after the 60s Surgeon General's report that smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. Because you can absolutely show that it's impossible to prove that the extremely high correlation between smoking and lung cancer isn't a coincidence. Even though you take a picture of some person's lungs and it's all charred up after smoking compared to someone's lungs who hasn't been smoking, just because the lungs are charred up doesn't mean that caused the lung cancer that grew out of the black soot that's inside of your lungs. And people living in cities have lungs that all are charred up compared to people who live out in the pasture way out in the countryside. And their lungs are clean because they're not breathing that stuff all day. 
and why poor kids grow up with asthma in the inner city because they're breathing all this junk that's in the air, you can still say, like the cigarette companies used to say for 35 years, it's just a coincidence. You haven't proven anything because correlation doesn't mean causation. Well, we come to have now concluded that it's a pretty good darn high probability that if you smoke and you smoke enough cigarettes and you smoke them long enough, you're going to get emphysema, lung cancer, heart disease. Um, what's the other one? Stroke. Stroke. What? Leukemia? Not leukemia. What? 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 Diabetes. You know, one of these diseases is prob very likely that a major factor, not the only factor, has to do with your genetic inheritance and family history. It has to do with bad luck. It has to do with what other kinds of cancers are in your body because you eat too much, or you ate too many Twinkies or you live next to some other sets of poisons. But you, know, you can't prove, prove, like impossible to disprove. But you can build a pretty darn good, strong case. Now, what's the problem with global warming? The problem is that these are done with statistics using regression analyses that are still, it could just be a coincidence. And it also could be that the statistical models are, 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 cannot show this chance um, that produced these variations. To put it another way, it could be a type 1 or a type 2 error. Anyone know what those are? What's the difference between a type 1 error or a type 2 error? I had a friend in the early 1990s, she was a really fun person, I remember her name but I won't tell you her name, who got a HIV positive test result. And she said, that's funny. I'm not Haitian. I'm not an intravenous drug user. I'm not gay. And this was before Arthur Ashe and blood transfers and, and, and before heterosexuals started getting HIV. She said, she didn't sleep for a week, but she said, you know, I don't think I got this. And what she got was a false positive, which is a type 1 error. And she took the test again, and if there's a 3% chance on average of a type 1 error, the chances of getting two in a row would be 0.03 times 0.03, or 0.0009, which is 0.09 of 1%. So the chances of two false positives in a row is extremely low, one in a million. Actually, nine out of 10,000, to be more accurate. Nine chances out of 10,000, pretty low. Uh, and she didn't, she, got, she didn't get a false positive the second time, she got a negative. Unfortunately, false negative is a type 2 error. That says you're clean when you're not. And in many ways, with medical testing, as bad as a false positive is, a false negative could be even worse, because then you think you're fine. And thus, just as it's wise often with major surgery to get a second opinion, in fact, I would say you should always pay for it, even if, you, even if it's expensive. Um, a false negative may lead you into a false sense of security. So with these computer models, which are simulations of simulations of data going in and out, a lot of people think, look, you can't model all of reality. You can't avoid type 1 and type 2 errors. You can't avoid spurious correlations that are coincidences. Therefore, we don't believe it. Now, if you're looking at global warming, you might say to yourself, isn't it kind of odd that all the scientists who think global warming is a result of human activity 
don't work for oil and natural gas and, and electric power companies. And all the ones that say it's a natural phenomenon work for oil companies, natural gas, coal companies, and other energy companies. Is, is that just a coincidence? And you know, it kind of raises the question, why is it that we have so much conflicting scientific evidence on health conclusions? You know, for years you say you have a mammogram. Now they say mam mammograms do more harm than good unless you're at least 40 as a woman <coughs> for testing for breast cancer. And this medicine works, now this medicine doesn't work. They even had a situation, if you'll remember, of a, of a cholesterol reducing. You guys are too young to worry about cholesterol, right? No. Nobody's had their cholesterol checked? You better get it checked because if you're at a certain level now, it's going to be much higher when you're older. So actually, now you, now you got a chance. By the time you're 50, it's too late. you got to start taking these medicines. So do have your cholesterol checked. But they had this medicine before. It was assumed you reduce your cholesterol, you reduce your chance of heart disease, heart attack, stroke, etc. So they had this new m medicine that definitely lowered your cholesterol. There's only one problem with it. Do you know what it was? It increased heart disease, it increased strokes. So the whole theory was it got approved as a drug because it lowered your cholesterol. But nobody, it doesn't really matter what your cholesterol is. What you're worried about is heart attacks and strokes. Uh, and it made it actually worse. I'm not sure why. Because those lipids in your, in your uh, fats and the proteins in your cholesterol keeps your veins pliable and allows them to stretch and repair. So you, what it did is it lowered a certain type of cholesterol that destroyed those proteins, breaking down the walls of the veins, causing the veins to rupture, and that's what stroke is. Well, we have an, an expert nurse here, but lab tech, <laughs> lab tech. But but I, I I don't think it's the distinction between good and bad cholesterol. I mean, I should have said I think it lowered the bad cholesterol. Well, it but it, it lowered a certain it, the way that it lowered it was was not fully. So you actually know the real reason. The way that it was lowered was not fully investigated. They put it on the market without looking into exactly why certain people had strokes while on the medication in the first and second round trials. They pushed it through to the third round trials and the FDA said, okay, great, put it on the market. So um, this is all designed to get you to think about how we know what we know. It's all often more important how the methodology we use in social science, especially even more than Natural science, at least with natural science, you can do controlled experiments. So the me methodology is very simple. If the two groups are randomly selected with the same demographic profile, then all you have to do is compare the results. You don't have to do any fancy statistics. But normally in the real world, there's no control group. You're comparing France with Germany. France ain't Germany. They're similar in some traits and different from others. And when you're looking at the real world statistics about global warming, you can't say, okay, we got a control group where we got an earth that didn't have any man-made pollution. So we're looking at the world as it is, and the controls are created through statistical techniques, which means the models become really, really complicated. And even if you read the scientific papers, unless you've been trained in statistics, you don't really understand and therefore cannot evaluate the credibility of the methodology that's being used. All right, so when we're looking at the European Union like we are today, we're asking a number of 
different types of scientific questions. The first type of questions is just trying to understand why and how did integration occur? European integration, we knew a bunch of institutions started with the coal and steel community, the atomic energy agency and so forth became a common market in 1959. Um, and all of a sudden we had two major responses to the common market, which got rid of tariffs, duties, and quotas, and produced free trade. The first was no more war, which is really why they started the whole thing. The steel and coal community was designed to control these two industries so that France and Germany wouldn't make weapons and shoot each other. The other thing was it was an economic boom. And if you think the European Union contributed to the economic boom, then you say the European Union produced the boom that produced the peace because everybody became economically independent. But it's also possible, possible, that the EU was a spurious correlation. for peace. By spurious correlation, again, what is the definition? What does that mean? It's coincidence. If the EU is the coincidence, what is the real cause? Well, didn't the First and the Second World War both start when there were major worldwide recessions? Right. There hasn't been a major worldwide recession until now. Well, the argument until here is that, that, that the EU caused the economic growth. But the answer would be, it wasn't the EU, okay? Um, for one thing, the, the huge worldwide depression between the two world wars was egged on, regardless of what initially caused it, by each country putting up tariff barriers so they couldn't trade with each other. What Adam Smith called in 1776 in his book, The Wealth of Nations, beggar thy neighbor policies, okay? They weren't doing it. They were doing free trade. Now, if you're going to make the argument that the EU is where it's at, you'd say precisely the EU prevented beggar they neighbor policies by lowering tariffs, duties, and other forms of trade, predatory trade practices, so that all these countries could trade each other efficiently based on price rather than not trading with each other because foreign imports would be taxed at 100%, 200% above their actual price. But you could say, look, Germany was flattened. Germany got Marshall Plan loans from the United States. It had a huge undercapacity. The loans allowed uh, German banks and the German government to, to get companies started. The companies had undercapacity. They started producing stuff. People got hired. They bought the goods, and the economy took off. And if that's your theory for the economic boom, and that's your theory, think the economic boom caused the peace, then you say the EU was very nice and mom and apple pie, but the reality is that Germany was an industrial powerhouse that was driving economic growth in Central Europe since the 1870s when the countries began, right up through World War I, that the Depression was initially started in Germany by the predatory confiscatory taxes that the Allies imposed through the Versailles Peace Agreement and later on, you know, the country was isolated, and um, you know, Hitler revived the economy in Germany. Actually, 
uh, before World War II. He got the trains going like Mussolini did in Italy, but he got the whole economy going without a lot of foreign involvement so he could blame the foreigners. German public was also not war-weary from World War I because World War I was not fought on German territory. Unlike France that demobilized because the Western Front in World War I was almost entirely in France and the population was completely suffering. <clears throat> now among these theories that we want to look at in order to understand global politics, one theory would say that it's not a spurious correlation. It's a result of functionalism, which is described in the article, which is similar to that term we called before supranationalism or functionalism. This is the theory of Ernst Haas, an American at Berkeley, probably of German descent, who argued that the way you develop international cooperation particularly in places like Europe, but in the future with the African Union in Africa, the Organization of American States in the Americas, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN in Southeast Asia, is to get technocrats to promote economic cooperation, and that will lead to spillover effects and the desire to create political institutions that will facilitate cultural exchange scientific exchange, trans-border labor flows, transnational investments. In other words, provide the legal and political infrastructure to make transnational economic activity possible, which will greatly increase incomes. One of the advantages that functionalism had in Europe after World War II is a in a situation that doesn't exist in much of the rest of the world that tries to restructure the economies. What is the problem when they try to open up economies in the United States, uh, in other parts of the world, um, to free in investment, free trade, exports and imports, capital flows, labor flows? What, what is the negative for that? Outsourcing. Right, and what's wrong with outsourcing? Well, it would be a company, let's say a Ford, for example, would go to Mexico, build a factory, and get their labor extraordinarily cheap compared to what they would need to pay an American to support his higher standard of living. Right, and what's wrong with that? Well, uh, from the corporation's point of view, nothing. It's a win-win, okay. right? What, um, from the U.S. point of view, if anything is wrong with that? After all, we're going to have stronger economy, higher per capita income, more exports, more imports, more economic integration. Mexico won't dare attack us because we're a trading partner. What's wrong with that? Jobs. Right. Or put differently, in the long run, at least according to the theory, there will be an increase in jobs because resources, including capital and labor, will be allocated more efficiently. But in the short run, you get the Reagan Democrat which is to say, in heavy industry like steel and autos, for example, which in the 70s and 80s were concentrated in the Northeast Midwest, particularly upstate New York, Detroit, other parts of Michigan and so forth, all these really high paying union jobs, 25, 30, 40 dollars an hour, full pensions, full health care benefits, sometimes derided as legacy benefits, 
But the, the argument is that all these people got dislocated by foreign competition because the steel from Europe is cheaper. The chemicals from Europe were cheaper. Now, it was a little more complicated, but one problem was that these were largely national, nationalized, state-run firms that ran deficits, and the foreign governments would pay off the deficits. In other words, they were subsidizing the price. Now, from the consumer's point of view in the United States, this is a subsidy from the foreign government to us as the purchaser. Or to put it differently, when China puts together all these electronics on behalf of Apple and all the other computer and electronics companies, and they, over, they, they depreciate the Chinese currency in order to encourage Chinese exports so that it's cheaper in dollar-denominated terms, they are subsidizing the price of your iPod or your Nike Air Jordans or whatever else, or your textile clothes, by an undervalued currency which essentially means the price of the good overseas is much, much cheaper than the same good is charged in China. Because the way you exchange the exchange rate, you, you rig it so that the dollar-denominated price is low and the yuan-denominated price, if that's the name of the Chinese currency, is much higher. That's good for American consumers. And in a democracy, often consumers outnumber producers. But, and so the producers get screwed, but since they're a minority, they don't have much political weight, except, for example, if you believe that Reagan won all his elections in the 1980s because of the Reagan Democrats, it was not because of the Southern strategy of Richard Nixon to get all the disaffected white voters from the South to oppose the civil rights legislation, which was Nixon's so-called theory, but rather the fact that these rather low numbers of unionized workers who lost their jobs who were pumping gas for $5 an hour instead of getting $35 an hour as a union worker. Um, and even though the great recessions of the early and late 1970s occurred, at least in the first case, uh, under Richard Nixon and then under Gerald Ford, spilled a little bit over into Jimmy Carter's administration in the later 1970s, and even though both of these recessions were really caused by the quintupling of oil prices and two oil price shocks by OPEC, <coughs> the Organization of Petroleum Ex Exporting Countries, the Reagan Democrat blamed the, the Democrats um, because Jimmy Carter was in charge when he ran against Reagan. Reagan said in a brilliant campaign move, the problem, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is not that government is not solving our problems. The problem is government even though the problem was probably OPEC and other such things. So all these formerly highly paid, downwardly mobile white males uh, with high school educations suddenly voted Republican, whereas working class people generally with good union jobs always supported the union, always supported the Democrat, because that was their class interest. Now poor people, particularly poor whites, not poor blacks so much, don't vote their wallet book. They vote on the basis of culture uh, and social issues rather than economic issues. All right, so the point of all of this digression in, in sort is to say that uh, the economic growth of the European Union, if the EU supported it, then you, you've got evidence that functionalism is the reason why the EU was able to expand 
increased the profile of its activities from free trade to large agricultural programs to a major legalization project to make sure that all of the EU member states have the same legal codes, and a political project that led to the creation of the European Parliament that we talked about last week, another supranational institution with regular elections, and the strengthening of the European Commission, another supranational organization that, among other things, provides the technical assistance and administration of all of these European Union programs. So that's the theory of functionalism. A different theory, which you can also use to analyze international politics, <coughs> is neoliberal institutionalism. <coughs> Before I say what that is, let's say what is classical realism, classical liberalism. Just to review, once again, realism is the theory that international cooperation is dangerous, that the social contract based on Thomas Hobbes is that you give up everything that you claim for yourself if the sovereign gives you security. So security is the be all or the end all. So for a realist, as long as I'm promoting the national interest, the national security, I basically don't promise human rights. I can do whatever I want because it's a dangerous world out there. And cooperation is dangerous and risky because all countries have a will to power. And they're the enemy. You can't trust them. Even your best allies, you can't really trust them because they still want to get an advantage of you, but power is relative. Liberalism, based on the theories of social contract of John Locke, also from the, uh, Hobbes was from the 17th century, Locke is from the 18th century, he was provided the basis of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, which Thomas Jefferson got some of his ideas from. Uh, Locke, as well as Montesquieu, was the basis of, of the U.S. Second Constitution in 1789. This theory says the social contract is broader. The social contract is life, liberty, and property. If you give us life, liberty, and property, then we have to obey you, follow the law. If you don't give us life, liberty, and property, or what Jefferson changed to the pursuit of happiness instead of property, we have a right to revolution. And so the Declaration of Independence says, since we're, we're, we're denied not a life, but we're denied our liberty and our property, we have a right to revolution. By the way, um, I promised you one midterm question on who is the first US president. Remember, it's not George Washington. Um, another, another trick question that's in today's reading, when was the United States first formed? What, the, what year? If you've read the article for today, you'll know no, what the... I don't retain a lot of Okay. Anyone know? At least I tried. You did try. Well, obviously, if George Washington is not the first president of the United States, then 1776 yeah, is not the beginning of the United States. So when was the beginning of the United States? This will be on the midterm if you like. What was 1776? Signing of the Declaration of Independence. But what group was there? First Continental Congress. Wrong. 
the Second Continental Congress. So the United States was created in the First Continental Congress in 1774 when they created the United States of America out of 13 colonies carved out of the British Empire. They could have included Maine and Quebec and so forth, but they created those 13 colonies that became the United States. They, they actually declared independence in 1776 and created a constitution and then a second constitution that came into being in 1789. So there's another question in the midterm. The answer is 1774 with the first Continental Congress. And I didn't make it up. You can find it in today's reading. Um, what's the difference between the first United States Constitution, which was based on the Articles of Confederation, and the European Union? This is in the reading. Um, or to put it differently, what does the Confederation of Independent States, which was created after the Soviet Union imploded in 1991, and the European Union compared with either the Articles of Confederation in the United States or the Confederacy that seceded from the United States of America? What do the first two have that the second two don't have? All four of them are confederations. By the way, is the United States of America today a federation, a confederation, or a unitary state? A federation. Is the federal government an appropriate name for a federation? That's right. That's absolutely right. It really should be called a national government because federation is a system of government where powers are federated, that is devolved, decentralized from the center outwards to local government. They call it provinces, states, counties, local villages, towns, what have you. Isn't this supranational? Supranational. Uh, that, that is true, but there's no supranational equivalent for the Confederation of Independent States for the Soviet Union, but that's a very, very good observation. But it's not the answer I'm looking for. You got an A for that one. But what, 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 does, what does the former Soviet Union now call the Confederation of Independent States and the EU have that both the Confederacy and the United States of America between 1774 and 1789. All I had to do is get to the third page of the reading. The answer is that Europe and the Confederation of Independent States unified into a confederation with sovereign states, whereas the 13 colonies, and for that matter, however many states were in the Confederacy, 16, something like that? No, 12? Whatever the number was, it wasn't all of the slaveholding states, by the way. Anyone know the, which states stayed in the Union even though they had slavery? Aside from West Virginia, which I guess we seceded from Virginia. Maryland had slavery. The Mason-Dixon line, I think, went through Pennsylvania, right? So half of Pennsylvania had slavery and half didn't? Is that right? Or is it just the southern border? Anyway, Maryland, Delaware, I believe, had, had slavery. Kentucky had slavery that stayed in the Union. Texas, I think, had slavery and was not in the Confederacy. 
and so forth. Anyway, um, the Confederacy were all those states, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, those were not sovereign states. They weren't separate countries. They were part of what was a federation and they created a confederation because they didn't like central government knowing it what to do. Had the Confederacy created a federation rather than a confederation, they might have won the Civil War. One of the problems of the Confederacy from, it, from its own point of view in terms of winning the Civil War was nobody was really in charge. Jefferson Davis um, and the other guys, he was a president with no power because in a confederation you need a unanimous vote to, to do anything. So you're sitting there in the middle of this not being able to get anything done, just like Samuel Huntington. Who is Samuel Huntington? First president, First president of the United States. You know something? When you go on Jeopardy against that computer, Watson, by the way, here's another interesting question. What's that? Watson won. He beat the two champs. But he still made a mistake. And I already heard people saying, you see, if a computer can make a mistake on Jeopardy, we can't trust the computer models saying that greenhouse gases causes global warming. But the other way of saying is, you see, the computer beat the humans. Therefore, the computer is smarter than we are. So you can trust the computers more than you can trust people. All right, so with what you had here with the EU is trying to understand a process where sovereign countries came together and succeeded, unlike the Confederation of Independent States, which is really just Russia imposing its so-called peacekeeping troops on areas of the world where they want to cause trouble, like in Nagorno-Karabakh, they caused a civil war between Ar Armenia and the ethnic, sorry, the ethnic Armenians and Azerbaijan. Uh, they've got, in Georgia, two ethnic enclaves that declared independence, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And in Moldova, they created the country of Transdenistria. So those are five separate countries that have been created by the Confederation of Independent States in theory. But in reality, it's Russia sending its army out and making sure it, it will eventually gobble up all those countries that they want back inside Russia as part of the Russian Empire, just like it was before Lenin had to fight the Civil War to not only establish communism, but suck in all these other states that had seceded from the Russian Empire at the end of World War I, like all those countries in Transcaucasia and Central Asia. And the Baltic states were yet to be gobbled up by Stalin after World War II. So we're trying to come up with scientific explanations for this phenomenon. Neoliberal institutionalism is liberal to the extent that it believes in cooperation, unlike mainstream realism. But we call it neoliberal because it's a theory of the last 30 years, which says essentially that states are the main actors. You see, liberalism talks about parliaments, domestic groups, the right of the people to have feedback from the government, etc., etc. Neoliberalism is an academic theory that just says states rationally cooperate when they have international institutions to monitor and provide technical assistance. So here, for this theory, neoliberal institutionalism says the EU has succeeded because it provides technical scientific information that's emphasized in this chapter, as well as monitoring compliance with the laws and the legal system that it created to facilitate this growth. And furthermore, those who argue that the economic miracle was really just Germany's e economy taking off on its own 
it would say that no, Germany couldn't do it without the markets in the rest of Europe that were created by the common market and the European Union. And those markets would not be available if you didn't have the legal regime created by the European unions to enforce contracts, to penalize torts, to penalize and punish and discourage fraud, to have bankruptcy laws for debtors to come to terms with their creditors, et cetera, et cetera. And that legal system had to be facilitated on a transnational basis through its um, process of required uniform legal standards in the domestic legal system, as well as the European Court of Justice, renamed in the last year to the Court of Justice of the European Union, to enforce dis and resolve disputes among parties in Europe in the commercial sector. So neoliberal institutionalism gives us another view of why this process could be uh, a formula for the rest of the world. Because if it's true that the European Union ended terrible wars, including the three devastating wars between France and Germany, maybe that's a model that could be adopted in other parts of the world that are afflicted. If India and Pakistan could create an economic institution call Indo-Pak or Pak-Indo, whatever they call it, facilitating a lot more trade, investment, resolving legal system issues, which wouldn't be so great since both have British common law like we have. Uh, maybe in India and Pakistan will get along better rather than being at the precipice of nuclear brinksmanship, the sort of which we talked about on Tuesday. Final theory is the theory of constructivism, which we've talked about. This is a theory that says ideas matter. Ideas have always mattered, right? In politics, how people think is how they perceive events, right? New York Times says all the news that's fit to print. In, other, in the old days, back when people only got their news from newspapers, they used to say, if it, didn't, if it wasn't published in the New York Times, it didn't happen. Well, another way you could say it is if, if it's not on the internet, it didn't happen. Or then now there's so much stuff on the internet, it doesn't really matter because you can't possibly absorb 1% of it, right? By the way, just out of curiosity, of those of you that do get news from the internet, how many of you get news primarily from the internet? About a third of you? How many from TV? Another third? Some of you voted twice. How many people from the newspaper? All the yeah, all the newspapers. Yeah, I mean, online is all newspapers. All newspapers. It's all Anybody pay for a paper? I do. I do too. I actually can get a free, right? Whoops. Right out there with your ID, you can get the Times and the USA Today for free. Just swipe it. It's a machine right there. Well, you're paying for it. but it, No, actually, no. I think it's donated by the newspapers. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think they're trying to get you in the habit of buying it. That's what it says on the front, on the front yes. of the paper. That it donated? Yeah, that's what I read in the, in, in, what is it called, the pamphlet? The the signal. Times and, USA Today. and there's a signal when it first started, they said this was donated. I mean, they have these have programs, obviously they're doing it for self-interest. In any event, you can't get on the New York Times website in, in a matter of a few weeks unless you pay. You didn't mention my source, I only listen to NPR. Yeah, radio. Radio. You must be a pinko commie. <laughs> a conservative pinko commie, which is kind of funny that I was in Europe. Well, I mean, when you're sitting in traffic, it, it sure beats the commercials, right? Oh, yeah. 
And even an intelligent fellow like yourself probably can't stand talk radio, right? Some of those NPR stories are insufferable to me. And too sanctimonious? Or just, yeah, or just irrelevant. They're just going on about it. Well, you can't have heavy news all the time. You've got to have fluff every once in a while. That's true. <laughs> I mean, don't you like world music and a movie review? Well, a movie, yeah. I guess it depends on your taste. Okay, so um, if you're getting your news from these various sources, then that's affecting how you think, and that's how you perceive politics, right? What is politics really? Well, we can argue what it is really, but <coughs> politics, perception is reality. If the president is doing a good job, it's irrelevant if everyone thinks the president is doing a bad job. If al-Qaeda is a big, huge threat, or put it differently, if al-Qaeda is not really that big of a threat, it doesn't matter if everyone thinks it's a big threat. If Germany is a big threat, but nobody thinks that Germany is a big threat prior to World War II, then people are going to slumber and sleep and not mobilize and get prepared. But just because Germany was a threat in the late 30s and, and Europe slept doesn't mean that Germany's a threat now. Quite the contrary, it would appear. But the point is, politics is on the basis of perception. So constructivism emphasizes the psychological in politics. So maybe all the European Union is doing is signaling cooperation. You know the old saying, nothing brings success in business like success? When I was a kid in high school, IBM stock went up from like two to thousands. And IBM was the, the premier mainframe computer maker, and people only had mainframe computers, and none of them were as powerful as the weakest PC 20 years ago. But anyway, and you had to use these cards. I actually used cards to run SPSS when I was a college, soft college junior, I guess. In a big computer building that was as big as this building, just to run these computers. Anyway, um, IBM stock went up, 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 and there's a long time when a lot of businesses in the United States would only use IBM because it was a safe bet. They weren't interested in doing the best deal for their company. They just didn't want the you-know-what to hit the fan. So you pay more for IBM, but IBM, they won't, they'll get it done. So you're paying for reliability. So because they think you're success, it becomes success, and then that company gets a market advantage. They got more money, they can develop more R&D. They come out with a better new model because they had more sales, and so success breeds success, right? Like Apple. Apple now, is the iPod that great? Yeah. Why is it that the iPod, um, especially the fourth and fifth generation iPod, okay, they have flash memory, that's kind of cool. But they didn't invent it. Um, and you pay 135 to 100 to 200 bucks for eight gigs. Why do you pay that money? You get one for 30 bucks, it's not an Apple. Why do people pay 140 bucks for an, for an iPod? Status, design, <coughs> prestige, maybe reliability. <laughs> now, man, people stop buying iPods now because they all have iPhones. Now, and you could get an Android phone from Verizon, right? Mm -hmm. Better network. Doesn't drop your calls. Why did everybody buy the iPhone? Yeah, I'm Maybe not now. Now, right? In the last week. But 
Why did everyone go with AT&T with an inferior network just so they could have an iPhone? Status, right? Oh, you tell me. How many in this room have, a, have an iPhone? I think it's ease of use. Holy smokes. <laughs> I got some wealthy students. It was the first, right? So it's like the one everybody... The three quarters of you have an iPhone? But you're a sitting duck. <laughs> you got an iPhone and it says six hundred dollars, that's mine. Yeah, and I was happy for about a year and then everyone else got it. I mean it was amazing. You have to understand like the, the, the ease of use and then the, the way that it like responded to the touch and the heat in your fingertips. It was amazing. it was revolutional and revolutionary. Then, How can uh, I live without it? Yeah, could <laughs> you? GPS in your hands. And, I mean, it was the reality is I barely use my cell phone. But that's, you know, I'm a Luddite. You know what a Luddite is? It's like the ostrich, head in the sand. Um, anyway, the idea that ideas matter is essential to constructivism. So first of all, you have the idea of Europe, of wanting to belong to Europe, to be part of the club, to take the view that if you're not part of the club, you're nobody. So only countries that are very, very rich, like Norway, which is the richest country in the world. Did you know that? Norway, for the last 10 years, is the richest country in the world. What are the taxes like? Do they have high taxes like No, is it matter? Well, they have. You get a lot. Like, they put away a lot more money and give it back to you. Um, they have oil, basically. And low population, hardworking, highly educated. So they're not in the EU. Switzerland, which is always neutral, is not in there. Sweden finally joined. But except for these very well-to-do countries, most countries say, I want to be in there. The, the countries in Southern Europe and Southeast Europe, they were desperate to get in. The early European countries, they pulled a fast one on them. There was no plebiscite or referendum. There's supposedly this um, permissive consensus. But in reality, what happened is the elite said, OK, we're going to do this. And all the people in Italy, France, and Germany, and other countries were told, by the way, you're in the European Union. And it wasn't clear that they actually liked that development very much. And when they finally got to vote on the Constitution four or five years ago in, in France and the Netherlands, they voted it down. So they never got a constitution for Europe. Instead, they got that Lisbon Treaty we talked about that came into effect in December 2009. The causal factor here with constructivism is that you've got to have an identity that matches the idea. So the conditions in which ideas matter is where you have the kind of identity for that idea. So if you have the idea of wanting to join Europe, particularly as a peripheral, weak country with low standards of living, like in former Yugoslavia, Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine, that's 10% or 5% the standard of living of the developed countries like France, Germany, and Britain. You know, you want to join Europe because Europe for you is wealth, higher standard of living, and status. So there's a match. But there's another way of thinking about constructivism that would go the other way, which is if you got an identity that's nationalist, and you got a demagogue leader come along and says, all your problems are caused by this minority or this foreigner, you're also going to get an identity that matches an idea, in this case, that wants to go to war. 
So constructivism is not a formula for peace by definition. It just all depends what identity and what ideas are being propagated. And in a time of crisis, whether it's an economic depression or an attack by a terrorist group that kills lots of people, you can have an identity which says, we are the victims, we are the best, we are America, let's go out and get them, let's take off our gloves and fight them, no rules allowed. So you actually could come up with a constructivist argument to explain why good countries, quote unquote, like the United States, do bad things, if you agree that's a bad thing, like torturing. Or why civilized people like Germans, faced with a world depression, which they managed to come out of with a leader who was a fascist, who blamed all the problems of the world in Germany on the League of Nations and the Versailles Treaty's confiscatory penalties for World War I, which you felt you would have won, and which you didn't feel any war weariness. And now he says, you should be proud to be German because you're the master race, and the identity of the people is to be German. And he's saying, now let's go kill the Jews and let's go get our land that deserves, because we, we are the master race and we need living space. Then you get a constructivist argument that's pretty darn dangerous. In fact, 70 million people were killed, 60 or 50 of them in Europe uh, in World War II as a result of that kind of constructivist match. So the social construction of reality says that between your identity and the ideas that are put, put forward, your perception of reality is going to be altered so that you will, human beings will create an alternative reality, which could be for good or for, could be evil, or could be for no, mishmash nothing. So, um, in trying to use scientific knowledge now to figure out how the European Union can go forward, uh, we've already analyzed the first question, which is, how did it happen? The second question is the policy normative question. What should we do about this policy or that? And one of the major policies confronting the European Union is the same one that the United States faces when it opens up its markets to free trade which is that dislocated workers are going to be the hardest hit by cheap labor, whether it's outsourced for foreign investment or imports that compete with domestic products. And those are imports that are, uh, come from low-wage countries. Or for that matter, not from high-wage countries, but they produce goods more efficiently because of better engineering. Like German are German cars really better engineered? Or are they just more expensive? Uh, they're better engineered. They're better engineered. And so they're worth twice the money? Uh, I would say that. It depends. But Assuming you got the money? The Buicks are on the J.D. Powers list because they're German engineers. Who's J.D. Power? They're a <laughs> company that, that, that is, assesses the reliability and functionality of products. They've got like a top five cars for reliability. Okay, I'll take your word for it. And when I get a new job with a higher salary, I'll check that list out. Um, all right, but the normative question would be, what do we do? Do we keep on opening up our markets? Germany has a couple of problems, right? It's a dilemma. Why is it a dilemma? Because Germans don't have babies, and Europeans don't have babies. 
they become secular and they don't have large families anymore. In practically all the European countries, the rate of number of kids per family is between 0.5 and 0.9. It's not even one per two parents. The United States, the, rep the replacement rate is 2.1 for most societies. It varies a little bit, but if you have an average of 2.1 kids per family, your population will stay the same. It obviously depends on when the average age is. You have kids, what's the life expectancy, and so forth. But in countries like Japan, and most of these European countries, they have much smaller families. Instead of five kids, they have one or none. They don't even get married, but that's neither here nor there. But the, you know, the average per reproducing unit is going down, so they need labor. How do you get labor? By letting in cheap labor. The cheap labor comes in, putting aside cultural questions or even racial questions, now you've got competition for jobs and wages. And if you bring in cheap labor, the average wages go down. So the unions don't want it because even if they're not even competing for the jobs that the union has contracts on, they still will depress the wages by lowering the average wage in the country. Or so the argument would go. And the second dilemma is that uh, if you allow free flow of labor, then you've got to allow free flow of capital. Now, it's good if you're a rich country, because free flow of capital means you can invest wherever you can make money. And I understand Mobile, Alabama has all kinds of German companies there. Anyone here from Alabama? Nobody? No one here from Alabama? Have you been to Mobile? Have you seen these German companies near the river? Yeah. You, anyway, apparently they prefer Alabama to Georgia. I don't know why. But, um, well, they get them a lot of subsidies. They don't have to pay taxes for 30 years or something, right? Lots of open space. Lots of open. Very easy to import their own equipment. And Comes right through the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, there's no river running to Atlanta, I guess. You can hop a train, I suppose, but it's a lot easier to just unload the stuff and you're there. Um, so if you want to have free flow of investment, that means your German companies are going to be investing in Mobile, Alabama. Wouldn't the German public prefer to have the money invested in Germany? Employing Germans or employing Alabamans? Well, again, in the long run, if our capital goes where it's most efficient, a lot of money will go to Germany from other countries, and it won't. It doesn't really matter to you as a consumer whether the company is German or foreign. You may prefer foreign. In the long run, there's equilibrium because they're going to get richer in Alabama. They're going to have money to create corporations who are going to sell stuff to Germany and so on and so forth. And it doesn't do any good to have all exports if you don't start importing. But in the short run. Every dollar that's invested overseas in the short run is a dollar not invested here, which is a dollar not put into our economy. So in the short run, it's a negative. Even in the long run, in theory, it's a big, big positive. So the dilemma is between short-term costs versus long-term benefits. Isn't it the same thing now, though, since the New York Stock Exchange is now a German company? It's, I think it's joint venture, isn't it? Now they're bigger than London. Well, the New York Stock Exchange is a private 
company for profit. It used to be nonprofit. And since it's for profit, you know, they need to, com they lost trades to New Jersey, as well as places over the United States and abroad. With computers, you don't need a broker on the floor yelling at the top of the lungs, 25, I got 25, who needs it? You just make a search like on eBay, you got the price, you buy it, you get the shares. So um, the competition really is based on who can develop the best software. The policy sciences also is normative. We got two articles here on women's rights, and the second of the two articles talks about the fact that the European Union only cares about women as laborers and employees and producers, but makes the argument here that women have free roles in the economy a full-time market, that is, the woman that goes to work, works for a company or has her own company. In the United States, women are much more often sole entrepreneurs. But a full-time market, at the opposite extreme, you've got a home-centered worker. Because women bear the burden disproportionately of child-rearing, often women opt for a home-centered employment, they run a business out of their house, they work part-time, clients come over to the house, you do the business from your computer at home, but it's still employment, and then you've got people in the middle that'll vary a lot, kind of a hybrid, maybe part, some part-time, sometimes you go to an office, and so forth. Uh, this author says that most of the EU's policies is only focused on women here, worried about things like daycare, equal wages, all important stuff. But they don't have any policies for women in either of the other two roles, a home-centered employment orientation or a hybrid. Now, some people might say, this is, this involves values, whether the woman should be based at home or should, by contrast, be based in the employment and be treated as an equal. So whenever you have policy-centered research, you're very likely to have the, the Somebody say, I don't like, I think you're biased, that's not my values, this is baloney, I don't agree. That's the argument that's being made here with this particular example. Or if we're talking about unionization, for example, if you go for free trade, generally you're going to reduce the percentage of union jobs in a country because free trade means that if you, a union is doing its job, it's getting its workers higher wages and higher benefits, which means the price is higher, which creates an opportunity for foreign competition to come in with non-union labor or with union labor with lower benefits and wages and outcompete you with you. So a lot of scholars are arguing that there ought to be a policy of science to come up with some way to analyze this trade-off. If you really believe in free trade as a doctrine and that whatever the market produces is the best, which by the way is a kind of ideology also, then what you're saying is you're going to reduce the number of high paid unionized benefits and Europe is much more unionized than the United States. Now we're in this country, I believe 30% of government jobs are union and 10% at the most of private sector jobs are unionized. Whereas 100 years ago is more like I don't know what it was for government, but the private sector was good, 60, 70% unionized, 
in all those unskilled factory jobs that got organized by the AFL and the CIO and so forth. In Europe, they have very formal systems of union negotiation. Instead of a company by company contract, they have uh, what's generally are industry-based contracts. And the negotiations are done between government, employers, and employee unions. And it's kept the social peace, and it's given a lot of power to the unions. But the policy analysis could even argue that we ought to get rid of that because it's inefficient, and Europe has very high unemployment. And it's argued the reason Europe has over 10% employment in almost every country and has had double-digit employment for a long time and the United States and Japan has had lowers because we have much more opportunity for market economics because the extent that we have unions, they're only negotiating a contract with a company and not saying everyone in the industry gets these kinds of benefits and somebody in some different industry might get much lower wages. So again, here's an example of where your values are about the role of unions or, or what are the appropriate wages that should be offered is heavily influenced by your values in, in looking at these processes. So this, to conclude, raises the question, can you do policy analysis, whether for Europe or in any other political context that is value-free? Can you analyze any problem objectively without bias? Can you say very clearly, these are my costs, these are my benefits, and here's the best option given the cost-benefit ratio for the different options? What social science sometimes says is, as long as you make your values clear, you know, I like unions, I hate unions, or I like highest average GDP, or I like to protect those workers that have gotten good wages so they don't get <coughs> their jobs because I believe in Pareto optimal solutions. That is, you can't do any progress that makes anybody worse off. Or you've got to compensate them if they're made worse off. Uh, so one answer is, if you do policy research, make your values and your goals explicit so you're trying to maximize the welfare that's implied by that value or that goal, and everyone knows what your bias is. The other one way of saying it is, is you can never t untangle all the values, that social science is always going to be biased, and let the biases reign. Just make your analysis, everybody knows where you're coming from. And the third option is to say the same thing. There's bias everywhere. Don't even get started. So those are three ways you can look at policy research to try to improve the benefits of society, uh, both described in this article in the EU, but can be applied in any other context. OK, thank you, and I'll see you next week. Have a nice, good weekend.